You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 15th of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The UK's government strikes out in front of the UK's Supreme Court again. Israel's incursion into Gaza reaches the hospital that the IDF claims sits atop something more sinister. And might we have bagged our last unexpected item? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Daniela Pelled, Enrico Franceschini and Terry Stiasny, will discuss the day's big stories. And our On This Day historical feature will recall one of the more controversial episodes of a still controversial conflict. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by a veritable mega panel of Daniela Pelled, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, former foreign editor of the Jewish Chronicle, by Enrico Franceschini, London correspondent for La Repubblica, and by Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author. Hello to all of you. Um, we will whip round the table very quickly by way of light introductory banter because you are all about to or have recently visited veritable jewels of their region, starting with you, Daniela. You are going to Venice. I'm going to Venice. I am actually taking a, a, a proper jaunt um, of somewhere that's a genuine tourist destination. As Andrew, as you, you like to ridicule me for liking to go to out of the way and bizarre places, but I hear that Venice is quite nice. Uh, it is quite nice, and you do like going to out of the way bizarre places and visiting the local museum. In fact, I'm sure there are many places around the world in which you are the most exciting thing that has ever happened to their local museum. <laughs> I like museum. to think so. Um, they're, they're, I'm sh- possibly if you go back to one of these places, there's a museum of your visit to their museum. <gasps> that is so meta. I that love that it. would be amazing, wouldn't it? Uh, Enrico, you are going to Bruges. Going to Bruges. Looking forward to the Christmas market and, and what you were saying about the museums. Uh, uh, sounds like a novel by you know Aram Pamuk or something <laughs> like that. You can have your own museum of your travels to strange destinations. Uh, and Terry, Venice, Bruges, Clacton on Sea. Clacton on Sea. There are fewer canals, I think. They they do have a pier though, and it has a helter skelter and some arcades. Which when you've been taking two fifteen year olds to a karate competition all day was was pretty good and you know they're probably happier there than in, in Venice or Bruges. I, I mean think. are the 15 year olds any good at karate? They're pretty good yeah. Because they, they cl- do cl- com- yeah. Clacton on Sea, one of those places you need a black belt to get back out of alive. <laughs> karate is quite popular there. It's quite a big karate competition yeah. <laughs> I, I, I am unsurprised by that. All, all jokes aside did you did you find much of Clacton on Sea actually in any way charming? Uh, there's there's a pier which mm-hmm. is a very old like school a old school pier. It had a helter skelter, um, pretty sunset, uh, even out of season. There was you know it was, it was it was quite nice. It was yeah, it was not the most beautiful place, but it had some nice gardens on the front. And you know, would yeah. it be a reach to describe it as the the Bruges or the Venice of yes. Essex? <laughs> okay, <well. clears throat> I think it, it would. would. It would. Okay, but we will be starting in the United Kingdom, which is having one of those weeks which are a long time in politics. It's like 2016 all over again. Or two. 
2017 or 2018 and you can fill in the rest of that riff yourselves. A matter of days after sacking his Home Secretary and installing a predecessor as Prime Minister in the Foreign Office, Rishi Sunak has been trying to style out his government's latest wigging from the Supreme Court, which has ruled that the plan of packing boat-borne asylum seekers off to Rwanda is unlawful. Here is the Prime Minister speaking a short while ago. I said I was going to fundamentally change our country, and I meant it. So I'm also announcing today that we will take the extraordinary step of introducing emergency legislation. This will enable Parliament to confirm that with our new treaty, Rwanda is safe. It will ensure that people cannot further delay flights by bringing systemic challenges in our domestic courts and stop our policy being repeatedly blocked. But of course, we must be honest about the fact that even once Parliament has changed the law here at home, we could still face challenges from the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. I told Parliament earlier today that I'm prepared to change our laws and revisit those international relationships to remove the obstacles in our way. So let me tell everybody now, I will not allow a foreign court to block these flights. That was Rishi Sunak speaking earlier. Terry, first of all, he and the government at large cannot possibly be surprised by the decision the Supreme Court has made. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think they can be. Um, it was a unanimous decision by the justices. They said that this was unlawful. They basically upheld uh, all of the previous courts, um, overturned the Home Secretary's appeal. And they said that, you know, the main reason is that you cannot guarantee that Rwanda is going to look after people who are sent there with no chance of uh, coming back, that they might be sent on to other countries and that it wasn't a safe country. And the trouble with this legislation that Rishi Sunak is planning, well, one of the many problems we'll come on to is he's just going to say, well, I'm declaring this Rwanda is going to be a safe country. I mean, it's not really in the power of the UK Parliament to declare whether another country is safe or not. Uh, Daniela, Sunak does sound like he's going quite hard on this emergency legislation and so forth. Isn't that a bit counter, well, countervailing, if that's the phrase we're looking for, the events of earlier this week, which had been interpreted by many as a pre-election pivot to sanity? This is full-on scenery-chewing headbanger stuff, isn't it? That's a very interesting uh, way, way of putting it. I would have just described it as straightforward populism, really. Uh, no, you say tomato. <laughs> I mean, it's very easy for him for him to just say, OK, actually, we're not going to be, uh, we're going to be sovereign. We're, we need to make our sovereign decisions. I mean, I, that sounds very familiar. Mm. I'm not sure where I've heard that before. But, you know, calling the European Court of Human Rights a foreign court is really misrepresenting it somewhat. I mean... We're part of that court. We were involved in um, in its legal decisions. Uh, if we leave it, it means it's another huge rift. We have to leave the Council of Europe. Um, there are things that might be slightly problematic about it, but just saying and saying to the world, OK, we're off, is... I mean, I thought Brexit was an act of self-harm, but this is just kind of getting, you know, embarrassing. Uh, Enrico, Daniela, I think, identifies the key uh, language in that statement by Sunak, talking about this as a foreign court. Um, As the representative at this, frankly, crowded table uh, of of continental Europe, do you perceive something a little bit familiar in in Sunak's rhetoric? Well, uh, I mean, he, he has been said there has been already a... UK court 
who told him, no, you cannot do that, it's illegal. Now the European court is, is another one, another obstacle which already said so. But anyway, even if without the court, he say, he will not, I will not allow a foreign court to stop people being sent to Rwanda. What about the airlines? The airlines, not one airline accepted to, to take passengers to Rwanda because they were afraid of boycott from, from, you know, from the people. And the, the, old, the old story... Uh, since it is to stop the boats, you know, the idea to stop the boats reminds me of another boat, uh, the famous novel Three Men on a Boat. There is, <laughs> there is, there is at one point uh, a, a scene in which they're all, they all in a pub looking at a fish on a wall and there is a big discussion uh, who took the fish, was it the, the, the bartender or was this other guy, when, no, it was me, no, it was you. Then someone opens the door, the fish falls and breaks up in 1,000 pieces was not a real fish. So, I mean, this is all discussion that we've had for a year about sending people to Rwanda. Nobody has gone to Rwanda. Maybe we should start to take bets. Will ever someone go to Rwanda? Uh, I tend to doubt it myself. Um, Terry, I also have doubts, and I, I am not a constitutional scholar, but is this idea of potentially leaving the European Court of Human Rights actually even realistically possible? It would, as I understand it, breach the Good Friday Agreement uh, and it would terminate the law enforcement cooperation in the Brexit deal, among many other ramifications foreseen and yeah. not. And the thing is, if I mean, Rishi Sunak's rhetoric is a lot more headbanging sounding than it is if you look into the detail of it. He's talking about all of this. There's going to be emergency legislation. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, he's not, he's saying we'll find a way around the European Convention. He's not necessarily saying we are going to totally withdraw from it because he can't say that. And I think yeah, a lot of this is going to take ages, and he hasn't got the time to get all of this done. You know, he says I'm going to negotiate a new treaty with Rwanda. We're going to ratify that. We're going to have emergency legislation. He's got an election in a year, and most of this will be it'll be blocked by the House of Lords. It's it's not going to get done, and it will end up being something that the Conservative Party will argue about, probably in opposition. Uh, just finally on this, Enrico, is it being overly cynical to suggest that Rishi Sunak knows all that fine well that he's teeing this up as an election issue? He will he will sound off about Rwanda. Uh, he will sound off about the perfidy of the European, and you can bet he'll emphasise that word, Court of Human Rights. Um, but he doesn't have any intention, even in the vanishingly unlikely scenario that he's re-elected, of doing anything about it. He cannot do anything. He, and he probably, as you said, he knows he cannot do anything. This is just a bit of... Uh, show off, you know, uh, uh, trying to look Churchillian <laughs> somehow when he's the most distant figure from that. And uh, uh, at this point, looking at the polls, no matter what he does, he has no hope of uh, winning the elections. And uh, and I wonder how uh, you were saying uh, he's posi positioning himself a bit more to the centre with uh, David Cameron uh, in the Foreign Office. I wonder how Cameron will react eventually to a fight with the European uh, court. So uh, it looks like Sunak keeps doing the wrong thing. Well, we have all that to look forward to. Uh, to Israel now, the soldiers of which are currently conducting operations inside the Al-Shifa hospital complex in Gaza City. Since hostilities commenced a little over a month ago, Israel has repeatedly accused Hamas of employing the hospital, or at least tunnels beneath it, as some variety of command centre. Israel has made half-hearted attempts to frame this aspect of the incursion as some sort of humanitarian enterprise, taking pains to distribute footage of IDF troops bearing box 
boxes of medical supplies, helpfully labelled in English, medical supplies, and equipment to which hospital staff might reasonably respond that they were pretty well sorted for that until quite recently. Um, Daniela, first of all, is it beyond the realms of possibility that Hamas would be doing something so shabby and ungentlemanly as hiding under a hospital? Well, it's not beyond the the realms of, of reality at all. Uh, you know, they're, they're a, a militant organisation fighting amongst civilians, fighting in an urban context. There's no dispute, I don't think, that they've created this network of tunnels. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is, is that uh, although Israel's constituency at home and abroad may uh, be quite happy to believe that this is the case. They haven't produced any um, convincing evidence yet. There was some footage of, from underneath another hospital, which has been much torn apart on, on uh, social media, apparently showing a place where hostages might have been held. But it's not. Um, it's definitely not a smoking gun. I mean, a lot about this sort of awful... Um, our ongoing episode does remind me of the invasion of, of Iraq, uh, the idea mm-hmm. that you you have a, a completely unachievable aim to destroy Hamas. I'm not quite sure how. And, uh, you know, the initial objective is immediately, you know, it's easy to sort of topple the regime. But then what happens next and how many generations are radicalised? And we all remember the dodgy dossier and the idea that we would, this invasion was happening because Iraq could attack the West in 45 minutes. That never happened. If Israel doesn't produce really conclusive evidence and not the kind of uh, evidence that can be torn apart on Twitter, um, it's going to be uh, there's going to be an ongoing catastrophe. And certainly, I can't imagine international support, strong as it has been. Uh, up till now and starting to shift. I can't imagine that that will continue. Uh, Enrico, rather archly, Hamas have been indignantly citing the Fourth Geneva Convention. I think they're referring to Article 18 thereof, uh, which says civilian hospitals organised to give care to the wounded, the infirm and maternity cases may in no circumstances be the object of attack, but shall at all times be respected and protected by parties to the conflict. Um, It is a bit rich hearing that from Hamas of all people, isn't it? It is uh, for two reasons. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, following up on what Daniel was saying, the White House said they believe Hamas is under mm. the hospital. Uh, well, the White House believed a lot of things about Iraq too, of course, but let's see if they will be wrong twice. And uh, the, the second thing is uh, um, the Geneva Convention says also that, of course, Hospitals, schools, churches, synagogues have to be protected unless... uh, This is Article 19. uh, Yeah, unless Mm. some people, uh, you know, shoot at you from a hospital and and, and embase themselves there. Then uh, you have a right to respond and you have a right to defend, you have a right to engage. So, I mean, said from Hamas, I don't think they have a moral ground. Um, On that question of evidence, Terry... Should Israel actually find any, how careful do they need to be about presenting it? Because the information war fought by both sides in this conflict so far, uh, as Daniela was alluding, has been remarkably ham-fisted. I think they've got to be uh, extremely careful about the evidence that they have, partly because obviously 
to some extent they don't want to tell Hamas exactly how much they may know, particularly about where hostages are or might be. And they know that it's going to be scrutinised. But also because presumably if you're Hamas and you know that the Israelis are about to come in and if you are, you know, if there is any truth that you're based under the hospital, you're going to be getting as far away as you can as quickly as you can so that if the Israelis then arrive, there will be nothing there to see except that somebody might once have been based in a bunker underneath the hospital. So the whole argument is is likely um, to start again. But we've seen, you know, already in this conflict so much you know, deliberate misinformation or accidental misinformation and people recycling old images and, and things like that, that, you know, everything that's put out there is, is going to be pulled apart. And Daniela, it is very hard, obviously, to conduct military operations against a medical facility and look good doing it, uh, even if you are claiming the justification of Article 19, which does say uh, protection to which civilian hospitals are entitled shall not cease unless they are used to commit outside their humanitarian duties acts harmful to the enemy. Uh, the, the rule then is that you're supposed to give the occupants due warning before you set about the place. But nonetheless, the longer this goes on, the worse it does look for Israel uh, internationally. Is there a sense that the clock is actually ticking on how long they can keep this up for? France in particular is getting uh, outspokenly agitated about it. Uh, the clock was ticking from uh, the minute that they responded to the October seventh mm. attacks. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's very well known that they have there are two main considerations: as a military consideration when you embark on a, an operation like this, and there's the diplomatic consideration. And I think that's um, that's been the case for all previous um, Israeli action. But, but given the circumstances of this one, do you think Israel is maybe less interested in the diplomatic track than they have been in previous incursions? Look, this is this this war has lasted now for more than a month mm. at, at an extraordinary level of of violence, but it's happened because Israel has diplomatic capital to use. Uh, sorry to put it as crudely as that. And that diplomatic capital, as I said, the messages coming out of even the White House um, are getting a little bit more nuanced. Uh, there will only be, I guess, a week or two weeks before a humanitarian pause or a humanitarian ceasefire. Maybe sooner if there's the hostage deal that, that Qatar is, um, is negotiating. But there's only a, a certain amount that Israel can militarily achieve. But I think the calculation is that it's not a, a popularity contest. I mean, nationally, there is consensus that as harsh and as cruel and as how many civilians suffer, this has to be done to eliminate Hamas. So there's the national consensus. And as long as major world powers continue to say Israel has the right to defend itself, Israel will um, be able to operate. Now, it's possible that this hospital um, may be a turning point, but Israel has already lost the battle for world opinion. If it, it might as well, I guess, this is thinking, it might as well win uh, the war, uh, it, the, win the battle rather, for actual um, military achievement in at least limiting Hamas ability. Well, let's look now at Europe, and it is mildly incredible that anti-immigration voices within the European Union are able to rally support behind the spectre of an overcrowded continent, when the reality is that the continent is going to become considerably less peopled. New estimates from Eurostat suggest that on current form, the EU's population will shrink by 6%, or about 27.3 million people, which is an entire Netherlands plus Belgium, by the turn of the 22nd century. 
While this may free up windmill space and mean more waffles for the rest of us, it poses a problem in that this smaller population will also be older and we may not have finalised caregiving androids by then. Um, Enrico, first of all, I, I do need to put this to you as the Italian at the table. Uh, the highest childbirth rates in the EU, though still well short of the replacement rate, are in France, Ireland, Romania and the Czech Republic. The lowest are in Malta, Spain and Italy. Yes, no surprise there. I mean, because uh, um, it's an economic problem. People don't like to have a larger family right now as they used to. And uh, uh, Catholicism is, is less uh, important than it used to be for a country. For So I'm not surprised by that. What I'm surprised of is that we started a discussion today about migrants uh, invading uh, the UK, mm-hmm. which is geographically still part of Europe, uh, and w- when Europe needs people, needs young people, and most of the people in the boats are young. So there is a kind of contradiction there that's not so difficult to see. And Terry, this is a question that preoccupies a lot of countries in the developed world, how to encourage more of their citizens to have larger families and to start having them younger, perhaps, what have we learnt, at, if anything, about what does work and what would work, aside from perhaps subsidised karate lessons? <laughs> I would, I'm just going to say childcare, childcare, childcare. It's, 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 a lot of that is affordable childcare. It's sharing parental leave. It's actually making it affordable to live somewhere where your kids have got decent schools and karate competitions to go to and, you know, <laughs> nice places to live. It, it's quite straightforward. And the countries that, that manage to do it manage to have sort of family life and people thinking, oh, well, you know, I I can afford to do this without bankrupting myself. And, Daniela, there is a sinister subtext to some European success stories on this, which we will come to shortly. But Hungary, for example, uh, exempts mothers of four children from all taxes. Uh, It offers loans of around €33,000 to couples which get written off at their third child. And its birth rate has increased from 1.2 to 1.6. Poland gives €120 a month for every every child after the first. Would things like that, if more widely deployed, actually help encourage people to have more children? Can you imagine the fun that the Daily Mail would have with would have with that? I mean, I think all of our tax system seems to be encouraging people to have fewer children, and certainly within wedlock. So I'm not sure that's, that, that's, um, that's the approach. I mean, I, I, I agree with Terry. It's about childcare. But also, it's also about... Um, combating that sort of very conservative Middle England uh, attitude about that's still prevalent that women should stay at home and work and that there's something there's something apparently there's a working mother and there's a housewife or is it a stay-at-home mother <laughs> rather than just the idea that you know pa- rather than talking about parents who need to work I think that's I think I think that's part of it because not only do you need to be financially able to work and I think also post uh, I was going to say post the apocalypse uh, post the pandemic <laughs> post the pandemic the fact that remote and flexible working has become more usual I think that it presents us with a great opportunity to try and make it more equitable um, but also shared parental leave for, for men and for women rather than somehow the idea of mothers being rewarded when you have more children has got some really, really unpleasant connotations to me. Well, indeed. Um, And Enrico, this is where we do need to talk about the sinister undertones of this because this has become a major thing on the weirdo far right in Europe. Uh, I mentioned Hungary, which 
in fairness to it, has had some success, but you do wonder a bit about the motivations. Viktor Orban now hosts a biannual Budapest Demographic Summit. Uh, they had the most recent one in September. Star speaker was Jordan Peterson. Sorry I missed it. Um, it's it's not difficult to discern what's going on there. They base, They want more white people to have children, don't they? Well, yes. Uh, there is something similar uh, in Italy, too, in the rightist government led by Giorgia Meloni. She also said something about, uh, you know, having larger families uh, and, and the, or the League Party always say the same. More white people, we have to answer, we have to produce by ourselves instead of, you know, having uh, immigrants uh, coming over and, and filling the, the places that are needed in jobs or everywhere in society. It's it's stinks of uh, racism, uh, of course. Uh, this policy and uh, it's despicable, I think. And it is always fun to hear Italian politicians complaining about people travelling elsewhere in the world in search of work um, and better lives. <laughs> exactly, <clears throat> um, Terry. The EU is floating an idea, which I think is trying to bring a sense of order uh, to immigration. They they are calling it. And I wish they wouldn't, a sort of Tinder for jobs. This will be an online platform in which budding immigrants to the European Union will be able to find a job that suits them. In a way, yes. I suppose what this is trying to do is trying to say we want certain immigrants, we want skilled immigrants, we want the people that we need, you know, in in the places that we need them. Um, I think, you know, the obvious thing this is going to run up against is national governments saying, well, we're not just having you sort of sign up to a job in one country and then automatically have the right to go and live anywhere else in in the EU. So I think it's probably not going to get all that far. Well, now to more quotidian matters and what any decent citizen can only hope is the beginning of the end of this unexpected item in bagging area the supermarket chain Booth's upscale grocery mongers to England's northern settlements has announced that it will remove self-service checkouts from almost all of its establishments. Demonstrating a commendable grasp of the bleeding obvious, a communique from Booth said, We pride ourselves on great customer service and you can't do that through a robot. We believe colleagues serving customers delivers a better customer experience. We have based this not only on what we feel is the right thing to do, but also having received feedback from our customers. That last line translatable from the prim English for people keep emailing us, telling us they hate them. Um, Alert listeners may have gleaned where my own sympathies lie on this. Uh, Daniela, I am somebody who has and will again actually stood in a queue uh, rather than deal with a self-service checkout. And more than once finding not even that option available, I have simply gone and shopped elsewhere. I think you've been in this country a long, long time. If you now suddenly now have learnt to love queuing, um, I no, I don't love queuing. I hate it, but I hate it less than I hate self-service checkouts. Is my is my point? Where are you on them? Where am I on self? I don't know. It's the the, the thing is, it's. I've, I've it, given you a hint as to what the correct answer is, Daniela. <laughs> well. That would be too easy. <laughs> that would be too easy. I am a bit torn, really, because it's not. You know, I could, there are many, many days in which I would prefer to just avoid humanity altogether. But I don't think I've ever had a visit to an automated, a self-service checkup without having to like feebly wave down like a teenager, saying, oh, "Yes, I am over eighteen. Yes, this this uh, this paper thin bit of vegetable is not registering." So you know, it's not. It doesn't really work um, too much. But I think there's also a certain a certain sort of transcendent um, vibe about 
you know, scanning your shopping. I can hear the beat right now in my head, you know, being left alone to your business, a pause in your day. Um, I'm not convincing you, though, in no, any way. No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm right with you, obviously, on the wishing to avoid humanity. But but nevertheless, uh, Terry, do you not find just something alienating, dystopian, or just incredibly irritating no, about... I mean, have you ever been to one of these, you know, the Amazon shops where you go in, you don't speak to anybody at all, it tells you what you've got in your basket and then gives you a receipt as you go out. You don't have to interact with anybody. I mean, I've heard Vox Pops with some Booth's customers responding to this, and they all say, oh, it's really nice because we want to have a chat with somebody on the tills. Like, no, people, no, people no, who... No, we don't. Yeah, <laughs> you no. know, come to London. No one wants to make eye contact with you at all. We don't, we don't want to talk to people. We want to go in and out of the shop or ideally just have everything delivered by someone who will stand on your doorstep and say, here's your stuff, and you go, thank you. <laughs> so, so, you know, maybe we just not go to the shops at all. I mean, I do also think, of course, that people who attempt to chat to the person at the checkout while people are queuing behind them should be tasered. I mean, I do have... I do, <laughs> you can't I, have it both ways. You, you, can, you can have it both ways. I do have... <laughs> have nuanced views on this, uh, is, is what I'm saying. Uh, en- Enrico, what, what do you think? Well, when we, while we were talking before the show, I think someone mentioned one of the reasons for um, uh, having humans at the checkout is that uh, uh, is a measure of safety, security, so that uh, it's more difficult to steal. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a confession. Have, have you I've, not found it any more difficult to steal? <laughs> I have a confession. I have a confession to make uh, live on, on the radio. When, uh, when I was a poor young freelancer in Hell's Kitchen in New York for about 40 years ago, I used to steal in the supermarket, <laughs> the Puerto Rican supermarket around the corner. And if they had uh, no humans there, and it was automatic, my, my job of putting some of the products in my pocket would have been much easier. And and so I'm in favor because uh, I mean, oh, if if those Puerto Ricans uh, found me out back then, I don't think I would be here talking about uh, foreign affairs now. They they might be listening, Enrico. <laughs> yeah, but you know, forty years is a long time. Uh, I don't know. I, I I have known corner shop proprietors who can bear a grudge. <laughs> um, Daniela, are you at least convinced, or at least swayed by the the broader socio-economic argument? Uh, up to 2019, just before the pandemic, 75,000 retail jobs had been lost in the United Kingdom, many of those jobs taken by self-service checkouts, and many of those unemployed, disproportionately working women. Um I guess that's I guess that that's true. But can we not have um, can we not think about providing um, jobs that are flexible and can fit around childcare and so on that are perhaps a bit more exciting than working in uh, working in a supermarket. I know lots of people that have taken those shifts because mm-hmm. exactly those reasons. They're supposed, especially, well, I, can't, I shouldn't really name particular brands, but <laughs> they're supposed to be flexible uh, and very useful. But maybe that's something that could extend to other forms of work as well, rather than just supermarket checkouts. Well, does anybody have any other sort of modern electronic conveniences they would cheerfully abolish if they could? The internet, <laughs> <laughs> the, the the internet. Yeah, I, well, we're living in a fantasy world. I, I mean, all I, social I, media of any kind whatsoever. Okay, now now who's the luddite? D- <laughs> does does anybody want to raise Daniela on the internet and or all social media? Um, deliveries where people uh, say that they've delivered your parcel and you get an email saying your parcel has been delivered and then you have to go on a kind of a treasure hunt to find where it's precisely it's been delivered to, which house, which bin. Which, if there was yeah. no internet. 
Yeah. Well, then I still wouldn't know where my parcel I, was. <laughs> it, is, it is, in fairness, an excellent way to meet I, one's neighbours. Um, Enrico? I, I can say what I'm, a, I'm against for the time being is uh, uh, taxis or cars without a pilot. Uh, I know they started to do this in San Francisco, and uh, I'm not so sure it's... Uh, Safe what, what, what is it you dislike about it? Do you have safety concerns or do you Sa- just find it non-specifically well, weird? First of all, I, out of respect for the uh, lobby of Italian taxi drivers. <laughs> <laughs> and also... I say, so I, Puerto Rican greengrocers, fine, whatever, <laughs> they can take their chances, but Italian taxi drivers, yeah, they, you'll go in swinging a, for. It's a very powerful lobby. You know, that's, <laughs> why, that's why you have no Uber in, uh, in Rome. <laughs> but uh, seriously, out of safety concerns, I'm not so sure for the time being that uh, I would enter a taxi with nobody driving and say, okay, take me. Who would you there. say that to if no one was driving? <laughs> <laughs> well, to a machine, I suppose. <laughs> uh, Enrico Franceschini, Terrace Diasny, Daniela Pellet, thank you all for joining us. Finally on today's show, our On This Day historical series reflects on that fine line between exemplary punishment and gratuitous vindictiveness. In the summer of 1880, about a decade and a half since the events shortly to be discussed, their orchestrator addressed some of those who had carried his instructions out. William Tecumseh Sherman, for it was he, had become a legend among the Union Army officers of the American Civil War, fighting and winning all the way from Bull Run in 1861 through Shiloh, Vicksburg, Chattanooga and elsewhere. More recently, if arguably less gloriously, Sherman had presided over campaigns against the Modoc, the Sioux and the Nez Perce. He was now 60 years old, the commanding general of the US Army and the star attraction at a gathering of his fellow Ohioan Civil War veterans. He addressed his former comrades thus. The war now is a way back in the past and you can tell what books cannot. When you talk, you come down to the practical realities just as they happened. There is many a boy here today who looks on war as all glory. But boys, it is all hell. Popular mythology has condensed this to the declaration, War is Hell. This has in common with many frequently cited quotes that it is actually somewhere between a misattribution, a misapprehension or a mishearing. But if Sherman didn't say that war is hell, or at least not quite, he began making his principal contribution to establishing the truth of the proposition on this day 159 years ago. The American Civil War was not quite over by that point, but the Confederacy was tottering. In September 1864, Sherman had marched the Union Army into Atlanta. Surviving rebel troops had evacuated as the Yankees advanced, as had most of the civilian population, as Sherman's troops burned and blew up everything that was potentially of military value, and quite a lot that wasn't. Sherman now proposed, as he put it in a telegram to his immediate superior, General Ulysses S. Grant, to make Georgia howl. On November 15th, 1864, Sherman and 62,000 men set forth from Atlanta, heading for Savannah. 
makes you free. So we sang the chorus from Atlanta to the sea while we were marching through Georgia. That wasn't the song they sang. This was written just after the war by Henry Clay Work, and this version was recorded nearly a century later by Tennessee Ernie Ford. Union men who wept with joyful tears when they saw the honored flag they had not seen for years. The intention of what became known as Sherman's March to the Sea was to demonstrate to ordinary citizens of the South that the Confederacy was unable to protect them. As Sherman later put it, to humble their pride, to follow them to their innermost recesses and make them fear and dread us. It is not quite the case that Sherman's infamous, in certain circles, Special Field Order Number 120 instructed his men to do as they pleased, though many of them interpreted it as such. They pulled up railroads, bombed bridges, burned barns, stole food, slaughtered livestock and freed slaves they met little meaningful resistance. By December 21st, Sherman was able to send a triumphal telegram to his commander-in-chief, President Abraham Lincoln. I beg to present to you as a Christmas gift the city of Savannah, with 150 heavy guns and plenty of ammunition. Also, about 25,000 bales of cotton. The Civil War nevertheless ground on another few months. If people back then believed it was taking the South longer than it should to admit defeat, they hadn't seen anything yet. A grudge was born, and in the decades after the war, a mythology constructed. It became known as the Lost Cause, capital L, capital C. It sought to romanticise the Confederacy as a heroic project underpinned by old-school courtliness, as opposed, say, to a reign of terror economically dependent on human trafficking. Sherman, the scorcher of Georgia's earth, became Lost Cause-ism's principal villain, which was entirely to Sherman's eternal credit. As is Sherman's memoir, first published in 1875, which reinforces Sherman's standing as a philosopher of considerable gruff clarity. It includes the remarkable correspondence between Sherman and the rebel general John Bell Hood, shortly after Sherman chased Hood out of Atlanta. Hood accuses Sherman of, among much else, barbarous cruelty. Sherman's replies suggest that he thinks this a bit ripe, coming not only from a confederate, but from any practitioner of their common trade. War is cruelty, and you cannot refine it. You might as well appeal against the thunderstorms as against those terrible hardships of war. They are inevitable, and the only way the people of Atlanta can hope once more to live in peace and quiet at home is to stop the war, which can only be done by admitting that it began in error and is perpetuated in pride. It would not be the last conflict of which much the same could be said. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Daniela Pellet, Enrico Franceschini and Terry Stiasny. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Harrison Warlock. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>